0: We've been in this series that we call Fail for the past several weeks. We're going to bring it in for a landing today. And we're landing the series in this incredibly important place. I want to show you why. Will you please, right now, raise your hand if you know somebody in your life who has or is experiencing a fail right now, and you've wanted to help them metabolize that fail right now. Hands up if you are walking with somebody through a fail kind of moment, and you want to, that's exactly This teaching is so incredibly important because every single one of us, me included, at almost any given time in our lives has someone in our lives, someone around us who is experiencing what I call a fail kind of moment and who in the world, who here, doesn't want to help them, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, our whoever, through that moment in such a way that they come out on the other side better than they were before. None of us wants to see somebody just stuck in a fail kind. We all want to help people move to the next best place, move through a fail kind of moment. So this fail series, it's been about us individually, absolutely. It's been about how we personally metabolize failure. But I want to be really, really clear. It's not just about you. It's not just about us. It's all about the people around us to whom we have the opportunity, this incredible once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go to and love them and serve them and bless them and reflect Jesus to them when they're at their very lowest ebb. What a moment that we have with the people all around us all the time, and this helping those people around us metabolize those fail kinds of moment, it's just part, it's just one little part of what it looks like for us to flesh out this profound command of Jesus Christ when he told us, when he told his disciples in Mark chapter 12 to do this little thing, love your neighbor as yourself. Just before this command, Jesus says, look, you are to love God with all of you. Not just part of you, but you're to love God with all of you. And then there's sort of this part B, and it's going to come back up on the screen. There you go. It helps if I do contortions. You love your neighbor as yourself. You go, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Which means that this learning how to metabolize our failure kind of moments, it isn't just about you learning how to do that. It's about you and I learning how to help other people do just that. And so in the time that we have together today, we're going to reflect on some of what it looks like for us to love and help others grapple with their own fail kinds of moments. And I'm just going to tell you right now, this isn't going to be any kind of comprehensive listing of everything that you should be doing in their fail kinds of moments. These are just a few. These are just some of the biggies some of the things that might be most helpful to people around you who are, picture this, bobbing through the rapids of failure. And who of us hasn't been there? And who of us doesn't have somebody in our world who right now is bobbing through the rapids of failure? And the first one is this, your example matters. That is huge. Your example, how you and I walk through failure And how that is reflected to the world around us is so vitally important because here's what's true. We all are responsible before God to be an example to others around us. Whether we occupy some formal position of leadership or not. Your informal, personal leadership with friends and with neighbors and with coworkers and with family is just as important as any leadership, quote, office that you'll ever hold. And our example to others in the midst of our own personal fail kind of moments is incredibly significant. There's this fantastic Christian in the New Testament of the Bible, his name is Paul and Paul made a whole bunch of disciples. One of the disciples that he made is this young dude named Timothy. Paul writes this young dude named Timothy a letter. It shows up in your Bible as these two letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and in 1st Timothy chapter 4 verse 12, Paul is commending his young disciple Timothy to some very specific things. First thing, Paul commends Timothy to is don't let anyone think less of you because you are young. We should all chalk that one up, especially if we're young. Don't let anyone think less of you because you were young. Paul's an old guy when he's writing this letter. Timothy's a really young guy. And there would have been a culture around the church that Paul was leading at the time that would have said, ah, you know, Timothy's not quite Paul yet. Timothy's just this young buck who doesn't have it all figured out, kind of snot-nosed, he's green, Right? And Paul says, Timothy, I know it's happening. I know it's out there. I know people are thinking this. They're saying this. But you don't let anyone think less of you because you're young. You blow them off. And here's what you do. You be an example You set the example to all believers in what you say, in the way you live, in your love, in your faith, and in your purity. You set the bar, Timothy. doesn't matter how old you are, you set the bar. Because there's all these people who are watching you. They're taking their cue from you. They're watching even how you endure failure. They're watching you. And we could take that verse, that text, and we could lay it right over the top of every single one of us. And we could say, people are watching us. They're checking out how we metabolize, how we walk through, how we persevere through our fail kinds of moments. And for us, modeling wise and healthy methods of coping with failure is absolutely invaluable because they're watching and they're taking a temperature from us And they're taking a cue from us. And any time you and I are faced with failure, we have two ways that we can respond to failure. It's either wisely or foolishly. Right? Wisdom literature talks about this all over the place. Just read Psalms and Proverbs. We can respond wisely or foolishly. The world is watching. We're setting an example one way or the other. Whether it's work failure, whether it's personal failure, it doesn't matter. We can respond wisely or we can respond foolishly. And there's some traits that wise people demonstrate in the midst of being confronted with their fail kinds of moments. There's some traits that wise people, this is just what wise people do. When failure lands on their front porch and somebody's pointing their finger saying, Brian, here's what you did, there's some things that wise people do in their response. These are from a guy named Henry Cloud and I'm just gonna chip through them. Wise people take the truth in and they make adjustments to their ways first thing that wise people do is they take the truth in and they make adjustments to their ways. They don't just say, you know, that's just the way I am. You'll just have to live with it. You'll just have to deal with it. I know I screwed up, but wise people don't do that. Instead, wise people listen. They take feedback in. They adjust accordingly. When someone confronts a wise person with a fail kind of moment, they embrace feedback positively. They own their performance. They own their problems. They own their issues. They take responsibility for them without excuses or blame. Wise people. Wise people also end up with a stronger relationship with those who confront them with things like their failures. When a wise person is confronted with their fail moments, the wise person actually thanks the person who confronts them. They say thank you so much for the feedback. Because they see the person who's raising this issue with them as someone who cares enough about them to have a hard kind of conversation and they experience the person who's confronting them, talking to them about their failure as being for them. This person is for me, oh my gosh. Think about what that person is enduring. They don't want to have this conversation with you. They do not want to do that. But they love and care about you so much that they're going out of their way to say, hey, you know what, Brian, you blew it. And you go, oh, yes, I I did. Wise people as well, they empathize and express sincere concern for the results their behavior has on others. Let's say, for instance, that you have this fail kind of moment. This happens to all of us, right, where you hurt someone. And you hurt someone through something that you did or something that you said. And the person that you're hurting comes to you and says, look, Brian, when you do that or when you say that, it really hurts me. The very first words that a wise person says in response to that kind of confrontation, you know what they are? I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that this was causing you that kind of pain, that I was causing you this kind of pain through my actions. I would never want to do that. I'm so sorry to have let you down. I want to do better. I won't let that happen again. Will you forgive me, please? And what they're doing, what the wise person is doing is they're showing remorse, aren't they? They're showing incredible remorse. They have genuine concern that whatever the issue is, They don't wanna do that, they wanna do better, they wanna do it differently next time. They ask questions like, how can I get better in the future? I don't wanna fail like that anymore. How can I get better in the future? Wise people also don't allow problems that have been addressed to turn into patterns. If it's been addressed, it's been addressed. I'm I'm working on it, I'm working on that. Yeah, I'm not gonna get it perfect every single time. But you know what you say, is that wise people change. Wise people change. Now that doesn't at all mean that wise people won't ever fail again. There's very few instant kind of cures, but wise people listen. They learn. Their actions and their behaviors shift as a result of feedback that they're receiving, and wise people set an example for everyone else who's watching, inspiring them to do the very same thing walk through your failure kind of moments like this in a wise kind of way. And you can fail really, really, really well. And you can reflect Christ really, really, really well even in your failure. Now I want to look at the not so pretty side of the example that we can set to people around us. And it's the foolish response, right? Somebody comes to us, they confront us with a fail kind of moment, something we've done, something I've done, and foolish people, here's what they try to do almost every single time, is they try to adjust the truth so that he or she does not have to adjust to it. You heard it said, well, the wise person adjusts to the truth. Foolish people, they just don't do it. They won't do it. They're never wrong. Somebody else always is wrong. It's never me. Foolish people get defensive. They fire back with reasons why it's not their fault. Foolish people externalize mistakes. They blame others. Foolish people make an attempt to talk with them. Many foolish people. When you make an attempt to talk with them about problems, that conversation just becomes the source of deeper conflict, deeper alienation, and actually a breach in relationship. Instead of making the issue the issue, it becomes all about the relationship. And when you talk to a foolish people, a foolish person about their fail kind of moments. They'll often shift the energy such that the person sharing the message of correction, sharing the message of failure, actually becomes the object of correction. It becomes like a shoot-the-messenger kind of tact. It's all your fault for even daring to talk with them about their, how dare you, how dare you talk with me about that? When foolish people are confronted with their fail kinds of moments, they just minimize the problem. They say things like, it's not that bad, it's no big deal, it's not what you think it is. Many foolish people will try to just rationalize the problem. They'll make rampant excuses, never taking ownership of the issue. They make their emotional response nothing about remorse. Instead, they get angry at you for being on their, would you just get off my case? Would you just leave me alone, please? Many foolish people, when confronted with their failure, they begin their response with, well, you... Ever had that happen? Well, you, well, you, and that takes you miles off topic by just spending time pointing out all of your flaws, and you go like, yeah, I've got flaws, but we're talking about you right now, not me. Many foolish people, when they're confronted with fail kinds of moments, they have very little or no awareness or concern or empathy for the pain, for the frustration that they're causing others, the mission, their enterprise, so on. And so forth. So the fool's failure can be creating all kinds of collateral damage across a family, across a relationship, across a a business. But they're very often completely oblivious to it. They see others as the problem for even thinking that there's an issue. Foolish people, when confronted with failure, show the precise opposite emotional stance of the wise person who embraces feedback and shows appreciation for it. Many, many times people show anger, disdain, some other kind of fight or flight response, either moving against you or moving away from you for having dared to step into the fray and have a hard conversation about somebody else's failure. How many times have you had it happen in your life where you confronted somebody with something that they did, something that they said, something that caused you pain, a fail kind of moment, and they never ever talk to you again? unless they absolutely had to. Many, many times, people see themselves as the victim and the people who confront them as the prosecutors for pointing out the problem. They feel like the morally superior victim. They try to find others who come alongside them and rescue them and agree with how bad you're being for being against them. I can't believe that you would be against me like that. Foolish people divide the world into good guys and bad guys. The good guys only see things their way, see them as only good. The bad ones are the people who don't think they're perfect. And Christians, we don't want to ever have a foolish response to someone confronting us with our fail kinds of moments, do we? We want to be wise. And every single time you and I fail, we have this incredible opportunity to be this tangible, living example of wisdom and God's way, God's method of responding to our failure. We set an example, and people are watching, and our example matters. Second thing that really matters is your prayers when you're coming alongside somebody else who's experienced a dramatic fail kind of moment, your example matters and your praying matters. Now it's my absolute conviction that the prayers that you and I pray for the people around us who are experiencing fail kinds of moments are one of the absolutely, catch this, greatest ways that we can love other people. See, what happens as I see it is that when someone around us fails or experiences the devastation of some kind of failure, whether it's their own or some failure that's been inflicted upon them, what happens is people just naturally want to help them get on the other side of it. We want to help them metabolize it and get to a better place. Only the most sick and twisted people want to see other people suffer, right? We just want to help. And that's great. But so often we think, catch this, that it's what we say to somebody in the midst of their failure, whatever kind of failure that it is, it's what we say that's going to fix everything. Have you ever loaded yourself up with that kind of pressure? Where you have somebody in your world who is in a ditch, some fail kind of moment, and you've gone, oh my gosh, what am I going to say to them? We've all done it and we ask that question because we want the magical words that just fix everything don't we and so we get all pressured up about having to say just the right words and just the right way at just the right time that'll make everything like magically be okay it's all going to be okay because I spoke these amazing words and it all got better but can I just say that that is an incredibly unhealthy preoccupation. It is an incredibly unhealthy preoccupation with our words. And you know what else it is? It's incredibly condemning evidence of a very real and tangible lack of faith in the power of God and in the power of prayer. Because in the final analysis, the words that you and I speak to God on behalf of others who are experiencing failure, are ultimately far more important and far more valuable, far more powerful, I dare say, than any words you and I might ever say to them directly. Do you catch that? It just is. Prayer is the most powerful weapon we have when helping somebody through a fail kind of moment. Our family is experiencing the greatest fail moment I could ever imagine right now. We've been through this incredibly difficult trial over the course of the last 15 months. We've been trying, and you're tired of hearing about this, I know, so just bear with me. We've been trying and trying and trying to get our four little daughters home to their family where they belong from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And here's how this plays out in my heart and in my mind. I'm supposed to be a good dad. I'm supposed to be a good, loving father, and my four little girls, our daughters, are suffering terribly right now at the hands of a very cruel African despot and I'm supposed to be a good dad and there's not a single thing that I can do about that it doesn't get much worse honestly talk about a fail kind of moment what kind of dad are you Brian really and I talk to people all the time lots and lots of you And you ask how it's going. You apologize profusely for the difficulty we're experiencing. And a whole bunch of people say something like this. Brian, I'm sorry, but I have no idea what else to do. And so I pray. I pray that your little girls can come home. I pray that it will hurry. I pray all these, you know, on and on and on. And I say it every single time. Thank you so much for praying. You are making a real and tangible difference in my life, in the life of my wife, in the life of our family, in the life of our little girls. It is, many days, the strength of your prayers that God is using to actually help me get out of bed some days. And here's what else I want to say in that vein. Please do not ever apologize to anyone for not being able to do more than pray. Do not ever Apologize, And I'm not just talking about me, I'm not just talking about my family, I'm not just talking about our failed moment right now. Anyone, anytime, do not ever apologize to anyone for only being able to, please, don't ever do it. Your prayers matter far more than anything else you can do and should never be apologized for in any way circumstance your example matters your prayer matters and last we're going to finish with this one anyone who's ever experienced significant failure knows that one of the most devastating consequences of failure is this tragic little word shame shame almost every single person has experienced it at one level or another And shame means that many times we've come to feel that our failures have somehow made us unworthy. Unworthy to God, perhaps. Unworthy to others, certainly. And in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 42, the gospel writer records a time in the very early days of Jesus' public ministry... When he healed a man who would have felt the sting of failure, the sting of shame, the sting of being unworthy. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you're willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I'm willing, he said. Be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Whoa, right? If you're not saying whoa to that text, you gotta like wake up because that is a whoa kind of moment. Now, let me fill you in on a bit of the backstory of what's going on there. In the Bible, that word leprosy referred to a whole group of these nasty, infectious skin diseases that had varying degrees of severity. At its very worst, which by the way, I've seen up close and personally, leprosy would have been disfiguring, highly contagious, incurable, and even fatal in many cases. In the ancient world, there was only one way to cope with this dreaded disease. You know what it is? It's a buzzword these days with all that's going on around Ebola. It's the word Q, quarantine, right? One way to cope with the dreaded disease known as leprosy, it's quarantine. Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 to 46. Those who suffer with a serious skin disease must tear their clothing and leave their hair uncombed. They must cover their mouth and call out, unclean, unclean. As long as the serious disease lasts, they will be ceremonially unclean. They must live in isolation in their place outside the camp. Can you even imagine the shame of having to do that? You are as sick as you could possibly be. You've got body parts literally that are like falling off of you. And then to top it all off, you got to run around saying, unclean, unclean. Everywhere you go the psychological and the emotional distress and effects of that forced isolation would have been every bit as devastating as the physical effects of the disease perhaps even more so and so here comes this man he's got leprosy he's in a bad way and he's begging jesus if you're willing and jesus well of course i'm willing And it's this fantastic miracle, right? A miracle that really bears powerful witness to the mighty healing power of God through his son, the savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And I know for lots of you, this is old ground, but what gets me inside of this narrative every single time is the fact that before Jesus healed that man, what did he do? Did you catch it? What did he do? He touched him. He reached out his hand and touched a man with leprosy. It was an action that was strongly against Jewish ceremonial laws. Healthy Jews stayed far, far away from lepers. Just accidental contact with a person with leprosy would render you unclean for days on end. And Jesus says, you know what? I don't give a rip about that. I don't give a rip about that. And here comes the man. And Jesus intentionally, very, very intentionally touched the man with leprosy before he healed him. What's Jesus teaching us? What's he teaching us? Being there matters. Being there with somebody at their lowest ebb, their worst fail kind of moment absolutely matters because when people are experiencing the shame that accompanies failure of any stripe your and my presence with them communicates not just our love not just our acceptance but far more importantly it actually you and I communicate God's love God's acceptance and you talk about powerful you talk about powerful There's a fantastic author named Anne Lamott. She writes about a whole bunch of different stuff. But she describes in one writing watching Special Olympics track and field events. She talks about how not infrequently the Special Olympians would stop running in the middle of a race for a variety of reasons. Sometimes they would just sit down on the track, start to take off their shoes. Some of them would even take off their clothes in the middle of the track. But Anne Lamott writes, these runners would not, however, stay in the dust. She says every single one of them, every single Special Olympian has been assigned a volunteer. And that person, when their runner, when their person sits down on the track and starts to strip down or take off their shoes, they step out from the sidelines and they go to the runner and they get down on the ground with him or her and help them put their shoes back on, help them put their clothes back on and then takes the person by the hand and they start off again toward the finish line. And Anne Lamott writes, in all the years I've ever been watching, which is a whole bunch, I've never once seen someone not get over the finish line. Because those volunteers help the Special Olympians get back on their feet and finish the race in a host of ways, but perhaps none is more meaningful as getting down in the dirt, on the ground with them. And church... That's the very thing that God calls every single one of us to do and to be for each other when failure drives us, when failure drives someone in our world into the dust, into the ground. To be right there with them. You. You. Every single one of you us together. God, right now, today, is inviting and challenging us, every single one of us, to set a wise example in our failure. He's challenging and inviting us to pray bold prayers And he's inviting and challenging us to be there. Be right there when people around us fail. And when we are, we're used by God in that moment to communicate to every single person around us that failure, look, failure doesn't define us. Failure does not define any of us because after all, some of the most powerful Christians to ever live have failed in quite dramatic fashion. Watch this.
1: Denied Christ three times to save himself Crucified upside down on a Roman cross Considered to be the founder of the church leader who persecuted and stoned Christians to death, converted to Christianity and planted churches among non-Jews, was subsequently shipwrecked, tortured, jailed, and stoned by the Roman authorities, and finally decapitated by Rome. made him king of Judah. Afterwards, he committed adultery with a married woman, tried to cover it up, and had the woman's husband killed. God called him a man after his own heart. Doubted that Jesus was really alive. Went on to foreign lands in the east to plant churches. Was impaled to death by a lance because of his faith. Born in Galilee, and was the first to be called by the name of Disciple. He labored diligently in Upper Asia and suffered martyrdom at Heliopolis. He was scourged, thrown into prisons, and afterwards crucified. Called a glutton, drunkard and a friend of sinners and tax collectors, was tortured, whipped, mocked, pierced, and sentenced to death on a cross.
0: Just invite you to take your stuff and set it aside if you would. Could I just ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads and move into a posture of prayer and listening? to the Lord, reflection with him. And I'd ask you just to reflect around this question. What's God saying to you today? What's God saying to you about your fail kinds of moments? And what's God saying to you about how you're alongside, down in the dirt and dust, with others in the midst of their failure? What's God saying to you? And then the idea that God has in mind for every single one of us is that you and I would come zinging out of that question with a follow-up question, and it's this one. Now, what are you going to do about that? What's God saying to you? And now, what are you going to do about that? You could ask it this way. What's God want you to do about that? Because sometimes those can be two different things, can't they? What does God want you to do about that? And then you just drive a stake in the ground with him right now and you go, okay, Lord, I'm going to do that. Maybe you've got some personal work to do around your fail kinds of moments and how you personally metabolize failure. Maybe you've let your failure define you in lots of ways. Jesus didn't. Paul didn't. Thomas didn't. David didn't. You're in good company when you don't either. Maybe you've got some work to do around how you come alongside people. Around the example that you set for them. The prayers you pray for them. Your presence with them. And you just drive a stake in the ground and you go, okay God, I'm going to do that. I'm going to hit those doors and I'm going to hit my car and it's going to be different than how it has been. And then maybe for some of you, your action step or part of your action step or one slice of your action step is all about you inviting Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world to be your Savior once and for all. Maybe you've just been kind of nibbling around the edges sort of kicking the tires of faith in Jesus Christ why not make today the day you cross the line of faith in him where you say okay I'm all in and if that's you you can take the bold step of crossing the line of faith in him by praying with me and I invite you to do that with me right now just say Jesus yeah absolutely I am a sinner and I've been working real hard to try to save myself and I can't By faith, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation to me, which is my greatest need. Today, Jesus, I'm trusting you as Savior and Lord and boss and ruler of my life, and I say thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for rising from the dead. Here's my life. Here's my everything. Here's my all. And if you're someone who's crossing the line of faith in Jesus Christ today, that's the biggest deal of your whole life. Nothing matters more. Nothing carries more weight. Nothing is more significant. And it's such a big deal around here. We invite people to tell us when they cross the line of faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm gonna ask you to do that with me right now. If you prayed with me just then to cross the line of faith in Jesus Christ, would you be so bold as to just slip your hand up and lock eyes with me right now? You can do that right now. And let me agree with you in your decision today over there absolutely way to go absolutely yes Jesus in everything we do Whether it be in our lowest fail kind of moment or in our greatest conquest, we want to reflect you, Jesus. Help us to do just that.